0: Hello, 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 and welcome everyone, my fellow graduate students, researchers, ethics nerds, and everybody else who's listening. Today's episode is on a topic that is my jam, which as some of you already know, is studying terrorism and extremism. My guest today is an actual superstar on these topics because his expertise is sought on these issues all the time. Dr. Amarnath Amara Amarasingham is an assistant professor in the School of Religion and is cross-appointed to the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University in Ontario. He is also a senior fellow with the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. His research interests are in terrorism, radicalization and extremism, online communities, diaspora politics, post-war reconstruction, and the sociology of religion. He is the author of Pain, Pride and Politics, Sri Lankan Tamil Activism in Canada, the co-editor of Stress Tested, The COVID-19 Pandemic and Canadian National Security, and also Sri Lanka, The Struggle for Peace in the Aftermath of War. He has also published around 50 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, has presented papers at over 100 national and international conferences, and has written for The New York Times, The Monkey Case, The Washington Post, CNN, Politico, The Atlantic, and Foreign Affairs. I think the only place for which he has not written is The Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj. So Hassan, if you're listening, please hire both of us right away for your next political comedy show. Anyways, here's our discussion. I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much, Amar, for doing this. Um, as I, I was already chatting with you before telling you, you are very busy. I know you're always in the media because your research is often very pertinent, um, as well as with your own teaching and research schedules. So I really appreciate it.
1: For sure, yeah, thanks for having
0: me. No problem. Okay, so um, I know you're very well known within the security field, international relations field, but um, for our um, students or researchers outside the field, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about your research interests and some of your current projects that you're working on?
1: Sure. So... um... Yeah, I graduated or I defended the PhD in 2013, February. Um, that was mostly looking at uh, the end of the war in Sri Lanka and kind of the impacts that the end of the war had on the diaspora community in Toronto, which is the largest Tamil diaspora outside of Sri Lanka itself. And there was, there's been a history of a lot of political activism and, and and all of that going back a long time. And so that that dissertation looked at um, some of that in terms of ongoing uh, politics in Sri Lanka. Um, Almost immediately afterwards, I got I got uh, me and Lauren Dawson um, started a project on the foreign fighter phenomenon. Uh, At this time, you had a lot of people in Canada and other parts of uh, the world traveling to Syria to join a variety of different groups. Uh, So, you know, the Islamic State Al Qaeda linked groups um, kind of run of the mill rebel groups as well. And so part of the project there. Uh, was to try to interview these fighters directly uh, while they were on the front lines, asking them why they went, um, what motivated them to travel, and so on. Um, And so that project kind of ended around 2019, 2020, I would say. Um, I'm still kind of focused on it, particularly on the repatriation side. So I've been to Syria twice, visited the camps where a lot of the Canadians are being held. Um, So I'm I'm focused on the policy side a bit in terms of trying to bring people back and how to bring people back. Mm -hmm. Um, More recently, um, so the current projects, uh, me and Stephanie Carvin at uh, Nipsia are working on a book on the far right in Canada uh, for McGill-Queen's Press. Um, Me and Marc-Andre Argentino are doing another project on conspiracy theories and violence uh, for Polity Press, which is due next year. Um, And so those two things are keeping me busy along with a lot of the other uh, random articles (laughs) that are that are floating around um, here and there as well. So I guess the common thread for all of that is I'm I'm very interested in um, extremism. Uh, why people come to think that violence um, is a justified or necessary um, response that they have to uh, engage in. And and so I, I've, I've kind of fo- been focused on that side of things for a long time in terms of what motivates people to think, um, you know, bring people into believing that violence is somehow called, you know, they're kind of called upon to do something. Right. And so that, that's kind of the common thread, I would say, if you look at, you know, my work in Sri Lanka or the far right or ISIS, Al Qaeda, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So I am particularly interested in the ISIS project that you did. Um, um yep. so I want to know, apart from the fact that it was very current that as you mentioned, is there was there something specific when you were making the shift to studying people who were joining ISIS, apart from that it being a current event, was there anything specific about the group, about the fact that it was foreign fighters going that kind of piqued your interest in it in addition to why people, you know, commit violence?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my interest in it was. Um, the foreign fighter aspect, for sure, um, in terms of why you know Canadians who were born and raised here, um, and and people in Europe and people in the UK and the US were deciding that this random movement all of a sudden was something they needed to uh, dedicate their life towards. But what was more interesting um, this time around, you know, unlike previous iterations of for the foreign fighter phenomenon, um, was that. Was there was a social media angle, right? Yeah. Like all of these guys, the vast, you know, the vast majority of them, or at least quite a bit of them, landed in Syria uh, or Iraq and kept their social media profiles going. And so they were tweeting, they were posting on Facebook, they were posting on Tumblr and Instagram and Snapchat. Um, so it became an interesting methodological opportunity, which hadn't necessarily existed before, to actually try to interview people over. Text messages and Skype and things like that while they were on the front lines. Uh, usually, you had to wait till they come back, or uh, they go to prison, and you try to get prison access, or they get released from prison, and you try to get access. Then, um, but this was an interesting opportunity, uh, kind of in real time, to try to talk to them while they were over there, um, and and ask questions about why they went and why what what they you know what they hoped to get out of the being involved in the conflict. Um, So, yeah, I think I think that was the unique aspect of it is to try to actually um, talk to people in real time, because, as you know, I mean, terrorism studies has a data problem. Mm -hmm. right? It has always had a data problem. It's it's not like other fields where you can just go gather interviews or surveys or focus groups and things like that. Whereas this, you know, they tend to be clandestine organizations, they tend to be secretive. Um, Uh, And so uh, actually getting personal qualitative data, interview data is enormously difficult. Um, And and I think that's why a lot of people don't do it. And so this provided an interesting opportunity to try to um, actually talk to them while they were over there.
0: So is it fair to assume that you are a fan of qualitative methods or are you a mixed method person or do you have a preference for a methodological um, side of things and if so, why? Uh, specifically, based on your field of research.
1: No, I'm definitely qualitatively inclined. I I like interviewing. Um, I like being out in the field. I like getting my hands dirty. I like being on the ground. Um, so COVID was a little difficult. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I was stuck. I was stuck at home. Um, so I'm I'm not I'm not a quant person. I don't I don't do it well. I don't understand it particularly well. Um, so I whenever I use quant or mixed methods, I tend to collaborate with people uh, who are kind of big math brains. Um, but for me, I, I just I prefer to kind of spend an afternoon with somebody, spend a day with somebody and um, do an interview that way. Um, I feel I, I learn a lot more just by spending time with people over yeah. long periods of time uh, than even reading books or, you know, things yeah. like that. It's like you get a real sense of who they are, why they why they're doing what they're doing, and what they're involved with. Um, so I've I've um, I've always been kind of qualitatively inclined. That's largely out of the training in uh, University of uh, or Waterloo and and uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Our PhD program was very much qualitatively inclined and mm-hmm. uh, interview based, and so that's kind of where my training is.
0: So when you decided to interview ISIS foreign fighters, now this is a question that I'm sure you probably get asked before too what was the ethics process like to get it approved for an institution, right? Because you mentioned it yourself, these are clandestine organizations, they are involved in criminal activities. I, I cannot imagine the multiple hoops that you had to jump through, you know, just to get this approval when law enforcement is looking at them, the media is looking at them, the politicians are looking at them. So how was that process like, considering that, as you mentioned, it, we have a data problem in terrorism studies. Not a lot of people do this work. So can you tell us a little bit about how was the IRB process like for you once you decided on this research project?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was nothing short of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> it, it took us nine months to get approval, which yeah. is, I think, my personal record. Um, so as soon as we submitted it, Waterloo uh, you know, freaked out. They wanted yeah. to have a full, a full ethics board meeting. So that took a long time um then they ask questions like yeah the very things that you just mentioned you know what do you what are you going to do if the rcmp comes knocking for your data what are you going to do with privacy issues um how are you know these guys aren't local so you you may never meet them face to face they're somewhere else what happens if uh and and this is an isis and so what happens if isis threatens you threatens your supervisor threatens your university threatens the ethics board (laughs) um and all host of things we had to kind of meticulously answer as to the best as you know best of our ability. Like you know, it's very unlikely that ISIS cares enough about the University of Waterloo to send threats here, but um, uh, and so on. And so um, we had to assume that the university had our backs in case you know there were lawsuits or there were or or I mean law enforcement came looking uh, for data. Um, but all of that took a long time, and in the end, we kind of had to. I think there's this assumption at the university level that you know terrorism is this unique thing that needs a special set of tools to understand and part of our argument was you know you've already approved projects on pedophilia on the mafia on gang violence um, and a whole host of other things which are equally if not more dangerous (laughs) than what i'm trying to do and so um so don't think of this project as somehow a unique um unique thing and so once once i think those conversations were had it took a long time it was very slow um they they approved it finally after nine months and then they said you know they told lauren um like they actually teach the application at their ethics conferences because it was so complicated and multifaceted that it that actually became a teaching moment for them as well which is nice um so i yeah i think um and, and and Lauren, I think you know, did the did the, did the bulk of the writing on some of the stuff, and and he wanted to, uh, he wanted to kind of push this through because he felt like it was important to set set a precedent for other terrorism researchers in Canada to say, you know, this has been done, this is doable. Um, it doesn't need you don't need to just be afraid of the ethics board and never take a chance on what a project that you want to actually push through. Um, so it's good having a supervisor who also wanted to kind of, you know, push it through, because a lot of I think a lot of other universities and faculty members are just like, I don't want to spend 10 months arguing with the ethics board and therefore just forget about it. Right. And so I think a lot of research doesn't happen because um, people are busy and they just don't want to fight the fight. Um, yeah. So it, it was it was good having him to kind of actually be committed to the project and and see it through. So.
0: Yeah, and just a side note, um, my ethics project, because I interviewed the far right in Canada, your application and the paper that you wrote with Lauren Dawson as well on the, on the TCS yeah. website, I did use that a lot. My application <laughs> took almost a year to, I think, eight, nine months, and they were keep going back and forth. For me, it was additional, like, you're non-white, why are you going into these spaces? I'm like, outsiders have done, like, out people who are in the out group have done research, with, you know, other groups. So it was very useful. And I would encourage people, if you are looking at similar kind of research, like that is a precedent that has been set, And if you can use it in your ethic application, it kind of gives the ethics board of of your university some, uh, I think, piece that it has been uh, done before. But the next thing thing I want to know is that even though you were fully prepared, you have this application and you're like, okay, now I'm going to do it in the field. But what were some of the issues, which I'm sure might have come up that you didn't anticipate, right? So even while doing the application, while being prepared, were there some things that came up as you were conducting your research unexpectedly uh, where you were like, oh, I don't know how to deal with it. There's an ethical dilemma or moral dilemma as I'm doing my research. Um,
1: not really. I mean, I think there was an ongoing fear uh, and it's happened, you know, since then with uh, the RCMP going after Stuart Bell and, and CBC and, yeah. and, and uh, to try to get data and of course, Ben Maku and Vice News. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there was a there was an ongoing concern that I may have the only interview with somebody um, and that becomes evidence. Right. As it, So I think I think it's it is unique to some extent, maybe not with all crime, but uh, or all research, but within the criminal, if you're studying kind of crime related projects, your data might be evidence at some point. Yeah. Um, and so how do you, you know, that, that it, it, it is a concern. Um, and luckily, the university had our backs to some extent, and I anonymized the hell out of my interviews, Yeah. Um, so that I, you know, you don't even know I don't even know who you're talking about, right? Um, and so that—that that I think so. There are kind of strategies that you can use to protect yourself that way, is, is um, uh, and that's important to do, especially if you're dealing with projects or topics that are that could be law enforcement adjacent. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think I think the difference this time around, particularly with the online interviews, was how long some of these conversations carried on, right? Um, that was a unique aspect of a lot of the interviews I've done in the past, where, you know, you meet someone at a coffee shop, you talk to them for three hours, and you may never see them again. Yeah. Right? Um, whereas I used to talk to some of these fighters for two years on and off, and they'd message daily, right? And so the amount of da- data you get over time... Uh, you know whatever weaknesses there is from text message data um, it's also kind of longitudinal data like you yeah. actually get to talk to people for a long time um, and I became close with some of them right and so when they died like that was an interesting emotional experience <laughs> it's yeah. like you know yeah, I actually felt sad when some of them got killed on the battlefield and uh, never spoke to them again you know and then so um, that was an interesting kind of Aspect of the research which I wasn't expecting is to actually become kind of attached to some of these guys and how normal they are and how how very much they are like everyone else I know except for this one thing that they do, Um, and so that that was a bit surprising. Uh, And there was a few of them. There's like you know four or five who I became quite attached to, and and then they would eventually die or disappear. uh, and you don't hear about it sometimes, like right? some of them, some of them die and then someone else messages you from their phone and says this person died. Um, but you don't always get that. Sometimes they just disappear and you don't you don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, so all that all that was kind of difficult over time because yeah, I've got to got to know these people two years or something, and um they talk about their kids and they talk about their, you know, partners and they talk about their parents and they talk about life back home. And and so it is it is uh it is a process. So that that was surprising. Um, I was also surprised how many said yes yeah. <laughs> to, to actually talking, because the assumption, I think, going into the project was we're going to spend nine months getting an ethics approval, and obviously no one's going to talk to me. And so it's going to be a complete waste of time. But I think, um, I don't know, having a Twitter profile helped because they. They were also on Twitter. They saw I was a real person. They could find me on the internet. They um, they knew I wasn't like a spy or a journalist yeah. or something. And so the more, the more time I was just kind of around on Twitter and, and the internet helped them kind of build trust a little bit. Um, and, uh, and I was quite open with my own life as well. Like they would ask, uh, there was one fighter who always asked about, um, you know, life in Sri Lanka and the L tell me about the LTT and tell me about, you know, all the. So, you know, we had kind of back and forth like that. And so, um, he was much more open into talking about his own experiences. Once I, once he knew I was like, you know, an open book also for the most yeah. part. Um, so yeah, I was surprised how many people said yes and how emotionally attached I became to some of them. Um, yeah, it 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 shouldn't be surprising because again, it's just regular people. But yeah. um, it, at the same time, I was like, oh okay, now they're dead.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: kind of strange.
0: It's, and this brings us to the next question because I also found it too. Like you know, these are people when I was like when I interviewed the the far right. It's like they tell you op- openly they don't like the people who look like you. And then yeah. they tell you their story is like my my mom is fighting cancer at the moment. I'm taking care of them, or like I have two kids. And it's a it's a very weird emotional place that you're in. It's like I am knowing you as a person, but also the kind of things that you believe in. So did you ever feel sympathy or empathy for their views? Is it was there ever that oh this person is just too young and they make a bad decision, or is it that they just don't have the information, or or sometimes they're like these are bad guys. Like was there ever like you had any sympathy or empathy where they were coming from at times because you like you were saying right like it's you'll get to know them over a yeah. over a period of time
1: no i i always had empathy for their political choices because i feel i felt like at at the core they felt like they were doing something to help their fellow muslims mm-hmm. right um especially the guys who didn't join isis and were fighting with rebel groups or other al-qaeda linked groups and and things like that for them it was you know Assad has killed hundreds of thousands of people. There are mm-hmm. millions of refugees. Someone needs to fight and someone needs to do something. And and so at, at core, I was like, okay. Um, but there were guys like, there's several Canadians who I think were kind of like that, but they always switched groups. And then um, one of the, you know, obviously what made empathy hard all the time was uh, the Yazidi situation. Cause yeah. um, some of these guys, you know, I've talked to for a year, um, and they seemed like nice people kind of had, a, a, you know, a moral core to them. And then the Yazidi uh, enslavement happened and I was like, how can you support this right how, how? and then then they would just give me these ridiculous, like, uh, religious answers, you know, quoting the Quran and this and that. And I was like, okay, so this this is where my empathy <laughs> empathy ends. Yeah. Um, and and so it was difficult at at some of those times where it's like you felt like you knew who they were, bizarrely, but um, they would always support the organization over other their other ideas. And so um, they were they were like weirdly politicians in a way, right? They would always just go back to their Company, <laughs> company talking points, um, and and so yeah, th- those kind of moments were diff- difficult. But I think at at at, at base, it was young twenty year old kids who got involved in something they thought was revolutionary, and they should be a part of it. Right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Um, yeah, I think I think for them, they 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 made a hugely transformative decision that they're going to stick behind and. I can I can empathize with that for sure, um, but yeah, you, you don't have to. I think you can empathize with the individual without uh, empathizing with the broader ideology or the cause of the movement.
0: Mm-hmm. How did your positionality impact? So, you know, if you are a member of the out group, do you think that they were more likely to trust you or were they more hesitant in the beginning and over time trusted you? Or was it more that it's almost like they wanted to convert to their worldview? So did your positionality um, uh, impact anything? Did it make it easier or difficult in certain situations to get um, information that you wanted?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm not Muslim, so that that was always a topic of conversation um that yeah they absolutely tried to convert me several times a lot of them did um a lot of them were okay though with just being a person of color like they okay um they felt like you know i i came to canada as a refugee i i'm like come out of a kind of civil war situation so they felt like there was something there that was kind of like what they were doing and okay. so it, it 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 did uh it did help uh, that positionality Um, Also being from Canada helped in weird ways like they didn't see me as an American researcher because they like hate the United States right and so um, being from Canada uh, was helpful. Um, Yeah, being a person of color is helpful. Um, So those those conversations and I mentioned like some of them asked directly about the LTT in Sri Lanka and my refugee experience all that kind of stuff Um, where it didn't help uh, again. Uh, this time with, with with the ISIS case in particular was talking trying to talk to women mm-hmm. um, and so that went nowhere quick right it, I I did I think I got maybe two interviews with supporters who weren't in Iraq or Syria who were um, in other parts of the world uh, who were largely part of the support network so whenever I tried to interview women who were over there um, it was always a no-go like I'm not talking to men mm-hmm. The the end right there was no and I, you know, I, you tried to push back a bit, I'm a researcher, you know, and an anonymity, blah, blah, blah. And they just were like, I don't care. It's, mm-hmm. it's not it's not going anywhere. Um so yeah, that was a big that was a big problem because yeah, that means my entire data set basically is just men. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, luckily the majority of them are men. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so that's 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 something. But yeah, I, I wish I'd spoken to more um more women, but it was very difficult. Mm-hmm.
0: And now that you're doing all this kind of research, you know, like you talked about the sympathy aspect, empathy aspect, the broader political situation that's going on, and sometimes you're getting attacked because you're getting to know the individual in addition to their political views. Um, plus, you also know the ideology that they um, um, that they have. How did you care about your own mental well-being in all of this, right? Because this is a lot going on. Plus, I, I don't know if how much pressure you were facing externally, like, you know, in terms of publishing or in terms of talking to the media about this or, uh, you know, it's, was the law enforcement interested in you? I'm sure they were at some point. So how, is, how, how do you engage in your own mental well-being, self-care while you? Re- and I'm sure you were reading the things that they write or watching violent videos, as part of your yeah. research as well so how is that like how do you care for yourself while you're doing this kind of research
1: um so this was going to sound weird to say in 2022 but like that wasn't necessarily part of the equation right i think that the I, the notion of researcher well-being researcher mental health is actually quite young yeah right it's actually quite recent i think i've only started hearing about it since like 2018 or something like that okay. um so I didn't even really think about it in that in those terms. <laughs> and so it was it was only in hindsight, like after the project was coming to an end, I realized, you know, oh, I I've been I was talking to these guys nonstop, right? Because they would text at like three in the morning. Mm-hmm. They would text during dinner time. They would text while I was at the park with my kids. Like it was just constant because their time they're in a different time zone and and whatever whenever they get the message whenever they have internet access that's when they would reply and i had to kind of be ready because they might disappear again for six days or something um and so it was kind of all in all consuming for a long time but i never stopped to be like am i okay like that was never part of the equation um all the other stuff lauren was very good at because. he was the you know lead on the project, so if I ever got law enforcement emails or things like that, I would just kind of send it to him to deal with. Um, and he so he dealt with a lot of the politics around it. because I just didn't care. I just wanted to do the work. Um, and so, no, I, I mean, it sounds bizarre to say now, because uh, but yeah, I watched every single ISIS video that came out, um, regardless of how insanely bloody it was. Yeah. Um, I was talking to these people. They were getting killed. Um, they were taking over my life in terms of text messages. Um, and yeah, there was no slowing down. I never stopped to be like, is this is this impacting me in some way? Um, looking back, I don't think it did. I, I, I don't watch a lot of these videos anymore. I don't watch. Um, I tweeted about this last week with the Buffalo or last month with the Buffalo shooting, too. It's like I, I don't watch those videos yeah. anymore. Um, because I didn't feel there was this assumption with ISIS. I think that again with the data problem, that now that there's data, um, that somehow we have to be all consumed by it. And I don't think that's true. Um, you know, be- before it was like Bin Laden would send you a grainy video from the mountaintops, and you know it would be like one VHS tape, and so you know that's the all that's all the data we got. Um, so it was necessary to look at it and analyze it. Whereas ISIS was putting out magazines every month. They were online. They were had radio stations. They had video production, and so I think a lot of researchers assumed that because there was so much data now, it must all be important. Yeah, it must it must all be equally important, and therefore we must all we must all you know we must look at all of it. Um, and and so I think we got consumed by that a, l- a little bit as well. Um, with the new stuff at the far right live streams and things like that, I don't, <clears throat> I don't watch much of it because it's, or I, or I fast forward through it somehow. Right. And, um, because I don't think there's much value there necessarily as people think there's, um, so I, I've, I've taken precautions now to kind of protect, uh, protect myself with, from some of that, but it was never part of the equation, even at like 10 years ago. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's happening now because I think, Yeah, there are a lot more grad students, a lot more younger researchers who are consumed by this content and at least have the support, hopefully from some institutions. um, That wasn't really part of the conversation back then, Mm -hmm. Um, actually, I I say back then, like it's 50 years ago, I'm talking like, talking like seven years ago, it wasn't part of the conversation. Um, So I'm glad it's there now a bit more.
0: Did you ever have to be concerned about your safety? So I know you said that, you know, these people are far and yeah, they might not be interested in University of Waterloo, but but still like, you know, if they ever see you in the media, like you're criticizing the movement um, or even from the far right now that you study that and you comment on it a lot, have you ever, ever been concerned about your safety as, as a person, not just as a researcher, but just like you as a person? Uh,
1: yes and no, I mean, I'm very careful um for the most part like when I do media interviews and they want to interview me in front of the house I say no yeah um because I don't want anybody geolocating where I live um I'm very careful about tweeting my location even now like I don't usually post anything I I usually only post where I was not where I am um Uh, And so stuff like that. Uh, There were a lot of ISIS fighters who sent direct death threats, you know, I want to see your head removed from your shoulders and all this kind of stuff. Um, But they were in Syria, it felt like there's no possible real threat involved and so I wasn't too concerned but there was a lot of death threats coming in. I I seem to get weird death threats from random places now too. Like I, I write a lot on Hindu nationalism, and so I get a lot of death threats from Hindu nationalists. I get a lot of death. I, I I've gotten direct threats from uh, some of the trucker convoy guys, um, uh, the the so-called diagonal uh, network. Um, but no, I, I don't I don't feel like I that concerned. I'm not sure why. Um, I I kind I kind of tell my friends and I'm like, like we we grew up we grew up with gangs on the streets and it feels like this is not a big deal but maybe I'm being naive but it doesn't it doesn't seem to impact me in the same way that it sometimes it affects my colleagues yeah. uh and I'm not sure why but but no there's cons- there's fairly consistent death threats Throughout, <laughs> And I think that's part and parcel of the work, if you if you're doing it well if you're interacting with the people if you're, um, uh, if you're kind of out there, then yeah, uh, it, it kind of comes with the territory and so that's something for younger scholars to consider as well it's like, it's one thing to deal with data sets and online tweet, you know tweets and stuff like that but if you're actually interacting with people. Um, there, there is an, there's a chance that things can go sour. Um, so that's always, that should always be a calculus, I think, of some of the work that you do.
0: So when you're presenting this research, at either as a public researcher or as in the media, how do you present it because this is something I'm struggling with myself at the moment too because like you said you know you when you do the ethics approval you have a whole thing about how you treat your research subject doesn't matter how how much you disagree with them that there is a certain respect and along with anonymity like you will present their words as they say it Um, but at the same time like you are also putting that in context with the broader situation so whether it's the far right broader political situation or whether it's the ISIS broader political situation, you know the public looks at you right as an authority on these subjects. Yeah. How do you present it in a way where you feel that you are being fair to your research subjects who did take time to talk to you, no matter how much you do not agree with them, plus the public who is now listening to you very intently, like tell me, explain to me what's happening with this, with this problem, right? How do you do that? How do you become a public scholar?
1: <laughs> um... I mean, yeah, I think just what you said, I think just being honest about the data, I think my main objective sometimes is to just turn down the temperature a little bit, because I feel like people freak out over everything, um, and it's not helpful, and I think if you can come along and say, this is, ju- this is kind of an ongoing trend. It's much like every other trend. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's a bit more noisy and there's potential for it to be dangerous, but here's how to understand it. Um, I think translating some of the academic language into everyday language is important. Um, And that takes a particular skill as well. I think I've seen a lot of people jump on the media and start quoting, you know, Foucault and stuff. And I'm like, that's not going to fly. So I think, you know, translating the ideas for the public, uh, getting out of the academic shell is good practice, because I think that's what makes you... A good scholar at the end of the day, as well is like, can you talk to everyday people, policymakers, law enforcement, government officials, you know, your aunts and uncles? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Can you actually communicate what what they what's actually happening to them in a language they'll understand? Um, but I think part of what what I try to do is not um, try to be nuanced enough that um, people aren't freaking out. Like the trucker convoy is a good example. Is that I think everyone wanted to paint. I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people wanted to paint. Yeah. The convoy as this like Nazi rally right and I think so I, you know I was consumed in the live streams I watched a lot of the live streams coming out coming from on the ground I didn't actually attend the convoys but I, I watched a lot of the live streams um I read a lot of what I read everything they put out and it's like yeah a lot of people I think just understanding the human aspect is is important right a lot of like think about what you went through during the pandemic those people are just like that. They're pissed off. They're tired. They're exhausted. Some of them had it even worse than you. Like we live a pretty privileged life. They lost small businesses. They a lot of their friends committed suicide because yeah. they lost their small businesses. And so, bringing that level of empathy to them is important for the public to understand that this isn't some, this isn't you know 1939, uh, you know Germany or something. Like just take have some perspective on what you're looking at. Um, sure there are extremist elements there and you can be on you have to be honest about that too but um just kind of painting the entire movement as this crazy bunch of crazy people I don't think uh is our job like it doesn't help anybody understand it better I think Mm. it does the opposite and so um just being honest about what the movement is and being nuanced about it I think is all we can do um as academics um sometimes that in itself is a feat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it shouldn't be right. It's just um, sometimes I, I'm amazed how much I say the most obvious things to journalists, and they're like, "Oh my god, that's so interesting." Yeah. Right? And you're like, <laughs> "Okay, cool." Um, um, so I think I think I think we all have our temperature turned up very high, yeah. um, and just kind of calming calming the discourse down a little bit is useful.
0: Yeah. And I, I, did, I don't know if we didn't really focus specifically on the research findings, but um, uh, I know that you st- uh, you also study social movement. So would you like to like maybe talk a little bit if you want, because um, you mentioned the trucker convoy or like in any other situation to like when we're talking about a social movement, but that, that's the reason, one of the reason we call it a movement, right? Because there are different types of people with different level of conviction and different level of information who go yeah. up there right like let's say if there was a protest against Iraq war you would have people who think 9/11 is a conspiracy to all the way people who think torture is bad and that's why I'm here right So yeah. you have different people there. So do you think that if we look is that the same lens that you were looking for when you're trying to explain to people like this is a movement and you know different things are happening at the same time?
1: Yeah so you know I called it a populist movement and that kind of caught on a little bit. Um, which is good and then I also wanted to make the point that um, sometimes it's not about what they want to accomplish right it's because I think there was a lot of like what do they want what do they want I was like they don't want anything probably yeah. like the protest movement the protest moment is itself quite rewarding for people right um, for them to get out of their house after two years be with their kids kick the soccer ball around uh, make some noise piss people off um Get in the hot tub. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, is enough. That's all that's that they just wanted to experience a collective moment, right? Um, yeah. the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's enough. And then they're then they're gonna go home. Um, yeah, there's crazy people there, there are conspiracy theorists there, there are you know neo Nazis there, there are white supremacists there, um, but they're they fleeting minority, which we can which we known about. Like none of these, none of the names that came out of the convoy as the organizers were new names. Yeah. Um, and so that that's fine. I think it's just, uh, yeah. I think allowing it's. Unf- I mean, if you live in Ottawa, sometimes a lot of my friends who lived in Ottawa said they didn't even want to allow them that, right? Which because it was noisy, it was diesel fumes everywhere, it was it was obnoxious, it was annoying, um, and that's also valid. Um, it's just a, from a from a kind of academic point of view. That it was just they're just after a kind of collective experience, mm-hmm. um, and that's gonna yeah that's gonna be annoying. Um, yeah. But it, I don't. But I think painting it as dangerous uh, necessarily was a bit over the top. I think mm-hmm. um, I think there were elements in there that were dangerous, um, and and some of the and what's dangerous is that all those elements are have now hundred thousand to two hundred thousand more followers than they did before the convoy, yeah. so now they're whatever issue they take up take on next is going to be a lot louder, um, and they showed very interesting ability to fundraise very quickly, mobilize very quickly, which is going to be interesting as well um, mm-hmm. but I think the everyday people there were were just there because they were exhausted
0: so mm-hmm. yeah so. Is there any, a couple of pieces of advice that you would like to give early career graduate students who are interested in studying terrorism, extremism, broader social movements? What, are, what would you say it could be related to just the grad program or specifically field research? What, what would you advise uh, to them?
1: Um, I mean, I would just say have a supervisor that supports you, have an institution that supports you, um, and run some of that advice. Or some of the things that you're doing by them to make sure, especially your supervisor, to make sure that there are no pitfalls there, right? is that mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's going to be very likely that as a junior researcher, you're going to be more in the weeds on yeah. some of these topics than your supervisor is going to be. So you're probably going to be in the chat rooms and in on the forums and uh, watching the YouTube videos and this and that. And so. It's going. It's very easy to think that you know more than your supervisor on the topic that you're researching because yeah. you probably do, right? Um, but I think there's a danger in then concluding that you don't need that broader support structure because you're this kind of enterprising researcher. And I've seen people end up in dangerous situations because of that. They accidentally post their email online yeah. there their phone numbers are visible on these platforms and they didn't know that. Um, they give away their locations. They uh, start posting things that are moderately supportive of the organization or the movement. Um, so just random pitfalls like that, which could end your career <laughs> very quickly yeah, if you're not yeah. careful um, or make things very uncomfortable for you if you're not careful. So I think um, just working with your support structures is is, is, is an important one because this is uh, it, it's it's not I wouldn't say it's dangerous work but it's not everyday work right yeah, it, it, yeah. it it is it does require a bit of um caution and and making sure that you're not getting yourself into trouble so um yeah that that would be the main advice because I've I've seen that happen quite a bit recently which worries me is that I think a lot of young scholars think okay well I'm you know, I spent a year on these platforms, I know everything, and then they make mistakes, so.
0: And also they change so fast, like the groups, their ideas, like so fast, it's difficult to keep track, so even if you analyze something today, literally next week, they'll be saying, you know, something else, or adding something to it.
1: Yeah, 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 I think having that big picture is important, Is um don't over-perceive risk, I think that happens a lot too, is that, because because now we're kind of dealing with the opposite of the data problem is the kind of data overload. Yeah. Um people are having a hard time knowing what's important and what's not. And so it's just like every meme that gets posted must be the most important thing on the planet. It's like, no, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, having a bit of a bird's eye view of like what is the broader trend, um, what's important, what's not, and how to separate that. That comes from experience, that comes from kind of working in the field a while. Um, So keep that in mind as well as like just because you found just because you found a PDF that some neo-Nazi posted is not the end of the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So um, that's important to keep in mind, I think. And that comes from being close with your support system as well. And so um, and I would say go and find that support system because some I'm sorry to say, like some supervisors, some institutions aren't that supportive, Mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of, there are senior scholars around who will help you, yeah. um, me included, and so, you know, don't, don't be, don't feel bad to reach out, send an email, be like, what do you think of this, you know, and so I think a lot of us are pretty nice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're happy to, yeah, we're happy to provide that support if needed, but um don't just wander off by yourself into the woods. So.
0: Uh yeah. So Amar, where can people find you then? Is there, you know, you have a Twitter page, a website, email. Where can people, if they want to get into get in touch with you, learn more about your work? Where can they find you?
1: Um, Twitter probably the easiest. Um, that's where I post uh about hip hop, about my <laughs> random things I'm angry about <laughs> and things I publish. So um that's probably the easiest place. It's at Amar Amrasingham on Twitter. Um, um, and my faculty pages, I, I mean, the, uh, academia.edu page has all my publications as well. So that, that there's a link to that on the Twitter bio.
0: Okay. And I will post all of that information in the show notes as well. So our listeners can go and find it for themselves also. Thank you so much, Mar. Like this is this is my jam, like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very excited about, about, for this episode, but I'm sure for all the uh, students, whether they study, whether they are in this field, or even if they're in another field, but if they're planning on doing field research, I think some of this information will be very useful um, as they embark on this journey, because as you know, like this is Sometimes we do not have support within our institutions, or sometimes people are not working in, on the similar type of issues that we want to work on. And if you're the yeah. first one in the field, it's like, oh, I don't know where to start. But it's always good to know that somebody else has done the work that you want to do so you can you know, kind of get some inspiration. So thank you so much. Any parting final words you would like to say before we end it?
1: No, that was great. I mean, thanks for having me and um, I hope uh, people get something out of it.
0: They will, definitely. Okay, thank you so much. And our listeners, I will, you will hear from me. Well, I will not see you, but you will hear from me uh, next month with another episode. Thank you everyone and take care. Bye.